Hey, everybody. Welcome to Babs Buzz. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. I hope you had a great holiday if you celebrated. If not, you missed out a lot on a lot. I do have a bit of a sore throat, but I'm going to carry on. I got that horrible flu that everybody's getting. It's really hard on my throat, especially hard on my sinuses and my eyes, especially. And it, it was one of those flus that was god awful, just wouldn't let go. But I'm happy to be here. Um, we're going to make some changes in 2012. But before I get to that, I do want to go over a couple of things with you. Um, in the first time thrill corner for me, something kind of interesting happened to me over the Christmas holiday. I was channel surfing. My husband and I were looking for something to watch on TV. We were just chilling, you know, hanging out at the house. And I see on Ion Television that a film called Christmas Mail is going to be airing in 20 minutes. It was about a quarter to nine. And I go, Christmas Mail. So I click on it and I see the storyline and I go, that's my picture. That's my client's movie. And sure enough, at 9 o'clock, I watched the credits roll, and there's my client's name on the screen. So it was a first-time thrill for me, and uh, it lasted about a minute. <laughs> it was really not very exciting after that. But I know my writer was happy. I sent her an email. She was thrilled. She was very excited to see it air. It was the kind of picture she really did see appearing in theaters. But, I mean, deep down, we kind of knew it was just one of those MOW-type films. But it was sweet. It was very well done. It was a completely different script from the script I sold. The script I sold had nothing to do with what was on the screen. <clears throat> the script I sold looked different, had a different vibe, had a different feel. In my opinion, had a lot more um, texture, had a lot more dexterity to the backstory, which I'll get to in a minute. And also, I mean, the the B story, which was which was driving her, was almost completely ignored. You know, I don't want to give you a spoiler alert, so in case you do rent it, which would be very nice if you did, or even bought it on Amazon, that would be very cool. So that was a first-time thrill corner. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about the writer's, um, screenwriter's cheat book by Brian O'Malley a little bit today, because I've really, in the last, I'd say probably the last eight weeks, I've read, uh, just, I've had to read opening pages, as you guys know, because you've submitted them to me, and I've had to read a couple of scripts, I'd say maybe four to six, and all of them sucked. Why did they suck? Well, the more to the point is, why did the writer take the time to do it, send it to me thinking it was great? I'm going to start looking at that a little more closely now. What is it that you think is great about sending out a comedy that's 140 pages? Right there, you should know. Oh, crap. I should be looking at 90 minutes to 110 max. Okay, that doesn't pass the sniff test. Um, and no reader working for a producer is going to let you get away with that. And most of the time, scripts, when I read them, I can tell you straight up, they're just overwritten. There's just too many words. The way the guy said to Amadeus in the in the movie Amadeus, too many notes, Mozart. And Mozart said, well, you know, there's there's just enough. There's as many as there should be. Well, <clears throat> that might work for classical music, but I can tell you straight up, it doesn't really work for screenplays. I just read two screenplays by a guy, both award winners. He didn't win. He placed. Boring. Tedious. Breathy. I got a script from a client. Boring. Tedious. Breathy. I'm like, okay, think about this for a minute. You really want me to sit in front of a room full of executives and ask for $10 million for this? Are you are you crazy? I'm not going to do it. I'm getting a lot more picky as I get older and as I get more seasoned at this. Uh, I'm becoming a bit of a fuss budget, I am. I don't want to read crap. It burns my eyes. So if you can pick up uh, the Screenwriter's Cheap Book by Brian O'Malley, I don't know why you haven't. If you haven't, you really need to get it. It's important that you have it. You can use that pretty much as your 
Walker plumb line. And when I say plumb line, I everything is not written in stone. I mean, there's there there are films out right now, there are pictures right now that really defy the norm. For example, Midnight in Paris, obviously. Okay, Woody Allen, well, duh. But that don't stick to any particular formula. I'm not talking about formula. I'm talking about great, solid, rich, vivid, visual storytelling, which brings me to the suck factor. I saw, sorry, gang, I saw Captain America, and I came away going, okay, please, someone just give me some cyanide because I can't watch this anymore. It was too long. I, I... I have a challenge personally. It, it made money. Good for the studio, good for the actors. The actors were great. They really did a very fine job. The director was terrific. But the script was terrible, in my opinion, and it went on for too long. They could have easily cut 20 minutes off it, in my opinion. This is just my opinion from the cheap seats up here in Sacramento. Okay? But having said that, why did it suck? Okay. To take a beautiful. Beautiful face like that actor, and I can't remember his name. Forgive me, please. I know Michael will rally, as he always does, and get me the, the information I need. So when you guys go to look at it, you, you can give these guys their props. Why would you do a computer-generated face on this kid for 80 pounds? Are you telling me in all the actors in all the world, you couldn't find someone who resembled this kid? I mean, give me a break. They planted his face, a computerized-generated face, onto this skinny little body, and the creep factor was just too much for me. Plus, setting that up went on too long. They could have easily cut to the barracks and, and started the film there very easily. We're going to kick you out, kid, because you're too small. You can't keep up with everybody. The, the whole setup was just a, it was a crock. It was just stupid. Um, beautifully shot, though. Really great production value. you got to give it to the people who shot that. They did a killer job. Looking at it was just stunning. Um, when when I say suck factor, I also mean engaging, obviously. Scripts have to serve the, today's audience at many levels. You know, it's not like the old days, well, kind of isn't, where you could get a film made fueled by a lot of passion or passion alone. Now it has to pass a committee, which is a drag, unless it's an indie. It has to bring in bodies um, so that the people who greenlit it can recoup their investment so they can rinse and repeat, okay? This is a very, very sophisticated business. It's got down to, you know, comic books, gothic novels, formulas, books. Okay, this is why so many studios invest in people who not only read but read books because books bring in an, a, an already found audience. I have a writer I represent. His name is Jesse Orendoff. This guy writes killer killer mysteries. I mean, they're just terrific. He needs a better editor. Uh, and I told him that. And and, and this is a, a kind of a, an odd story. I may have told you this before, but I'll repeat it to set this up right. Oh, uh, when I first started as a literary agent, I read a book called The Pottery Thief. It was called The Pot Thief, but we call it The Pottery Thief now because of the whole marijuana thing. It had nothing to do with pot. It has to do with pots, you know, like pots in the ground and pots from history and Indiana Jones type pots. Okay. So Jesse sends me this pitch. I read his book, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. This guy had voice. It had crackle. It had everything. I sign him. Much to my chagrin, I was not happy about this. I will share with you, my beloved friends. About eight weeks later, he wins a publishing deal. There goes my commission. Yes, just wave it goodbye. Bye. But something about this writer just told me, keep this guy as a client. I asked him if I could still be his agent. He said, absolutely. Are you kidding? Agents are hard to find, and you love my work. We're a good team. Let's stay together. He's had very good luck. He won a couple of solid awards. In fact, 
The Baltimore Sun mentioned him very kindly this Christmas as one of the best books to get for Christmas. Okay. So one of the girls in my literary department, I offloaded the books to her to, to read the rest of them because I'm now doing the scripts. And Jesse in my, um, Jesse Flood, who's in my literary department, she takes care of reading things for me. She's very well versed, exceptional command of the English language, great speller, great grammar, and witty. This chick is funny and she can write too. So she reads his books and she says, yeah, Barbara, you're right. He does need an editor. Absolutely. So Ed calls me and says, listen, now that he's got all these books under his belt, I'm getting to a point, kids, I swear. Now that he's got all his books under his belt and he's getting such good ink and he got this wonderful write-up from this fabulous publisher, let's reshop him to a bigger publisher and let's see if we can get him a better deal. And to Philip Turner. Philip Turner is one of the top literary agencies in New York. Philip Turner is also a brilliant editor. Philip Turner is co-agenting with our agency to represent Jesse Orenduff to try and get him a better publishing deal, which brings me to movies. Once that deal is pinned, it is our estimation, it is our gamble, it is our throw of the dice. We believe that Jesse is going to have a very lucrative either television series deal presented to him because of his books or a franchise in film. I would like to see it go to television like HBO or Showtime simply because the demands of making a feature are profound and I think it would translate very well to cable. I, I could care less what medium it ends up going to. Honestly, you know that, kids. You know I'll sell anything. You know, I'll put my label on anything. If it's good, it's going to go. So now that he's getting looked at seriously by these slightly larger, larger publishers, as soon as that happens, the publishers are going to be looked at much more seriously by Paramount, MGM, you know, Pixar, everybody. They'll start looking and go, ooh, this book hit the, it's starting to sell. Should we bid on the rights? That's where it begins and ends for my client because once they take it, they own it, and what they say goes, which is fine by me, but I am going to talk to them when the deal happens and explain to them we have an idea who we want to star in the lead. Ed is very set on one particular actor that he wants to have the franchise to himself. Ed picked a terrific actor. I'm not going to tell you who it is because it's immaterial. And by the time this goes, he may be too old. Having said all of that, studios are looking at source material. This is huge for them. What they want to do is they want to hedge their bets. I mean, wouldn't you? Are you going to buy a 401k um, mutual fund that, that bites dust? Of course not. You're going to hedge your bets. I don't invest in corporate. I invest in corporations vis-a-vis vis- my mutual fund and my 401k. I'm not going to look at companies that suck. I want to look at companies. I want to look at big corporations that are making killer profits. Why? I'd like a piece of that. Thank you. And I need the tax write-off. So whenever they're looking for these, the source material, you'll notice that it's probably a book that sells halfway decent or very well, which brings me to it's on the grid. It's on the grid is, is you should try it for two weeks for free. When you go to itsonthegrid.com, you will notice it's set up to look like what booking agents and managers look at when they're trying to get writing jobs for their clients. So, I don't know, 20 bucks a month, you can subscribe to it. And you'll click on, it has OWA, which equals Open Writing Assignments. And then it says ODA, Open Director Assignments. I don't represent directors. So I click on Open Writer Assignments. Thriller action, because those are the, the best, that's the widest field. And I have four out of seven killer action writers who could dance toe-to-toe with anybody in Hollywood today. Yes, I just said that, and I will stick to that because it's true. I can back it up. 
So I click on those, and then it shows me the spec jobs that may still be open. So I call the producer, and I go, hi, my name is Barbara. Um, Gregory Houghton uh, is, might be available to give you a, supple, a couple of samples to do a spec on your script, blah, 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 blah. Did you find a writer yet? And they'll go, yeah, we did. Sorry, that's an old press release. It's three weeks old. Forget it. Hit the next one. Hi, Gregory Houghton is available to give you some of his samples. And I just work the pages, right? I go down, 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 down. Also, it's on the grid allows me as an agent to post scripts that have just come into my stable that are fresh and hot. For example, I am in love with a script called Laserbladers by Robert Powers. You've heard me talk about it before. If you want to check it out, you can go to laserbladers.com. It's very cool. I think I know this film's a hit. I know it. Period. End of story. Can't convince me otherwise. Da da da. Do you know I put laser bladers on its it's on the grid one day. Say, now this is pre-holidays, by the way. Holidays, nobody's in town, nobody looks at anything. So that's the caveat there. But do you know that I had it on it's on the grid for 24 hours and I got a call from Paramount. No kidding. Is it sold? No. Can we read it? Yes. Does it mean anything? Absolutely not. But it's better than a sharp stick in the eye. So get to know it's on the grid. Uh, and obviously, they're not going to take calls from people who aren't represented. So, you know, if you have a script that you think might fit the bill and you want to audition for a particular job, I'll take a look at the script. I'll tell you if I think you can do it, and then I'll hip pocket. But I'm going to be very selective because the script has, has to be killer great, killer great, killer great that you send me because I'm not going to put my fanny in the air for crap. I'm not going to do that anymore. Hip pocketing is kind of like um, it's kind of like wearing a pair of tight shoes. You could stand them for a couple of hours, but if you have to make an evening of it, you're going to want to be in a pair of comfortable shoes. You know what I mean? Okay. So that's uh, it's on the grid, so you can check that out at your leisure. Um, Right, uh, the Writing What You Know Corner Award goes to Richard Broadhurst, my client, for his um, TV pitch story called Last Session. Oh, my God. You, first of all, I have to set this up, too. I get this lead from Inktip. Leah, are you okay? That's my puppy dog. Um, I get this lead from Inktip. Want a jazz TV series, something like that. Now, I know Ed knows jazz very well, but he's not a writer. But Richard Broadhurst, it's like his second skin. So I call him up and I go, hey, how fast could you put something together for a job on spec for for a jazz story? He goes, oh, I'm kind of bored. I might want to do that for you. I'm not feeling well. I'm kind of recovering. Let me see if I can throw something together for you. He sends me five pages, knock me on my ass. It was that good. I go, dude, this is great. Are you going to finish this? He said, absolutely. I'm almost done. He was writing it in his head. This is writing what you know. If there is something that you are very good at, parachute jumping, cleaning a pool, I would, I can tell you that when I first read a script called Crawl by Greg Houghton, I, I thought to myself, okay, clearly either this guy is a thief <laughs> or he hangs out with thieves because it was so rich in detail. It was so funny. It was so, it assailed my senses in every way that I just couldn't stop reading it. It was great. Richard did the same thing. He, it was the subject matter that interested him greatly. He got, he actually kind of got a second win because of that. Do you know, as soon as we pitched the idea to the TV people, they said, yeah, let's, 
let's see the script, send it over right now. And I had a holy crap moment because I didn't have a script. It was one of those things where you bluff and your, your bluff is called and you're screwed. So I sent them an email, which was true. I said, listen, we're putting final touches on it, which he was. And I kind of stretched the truth slightly. I said, it's, you know, it's not really perfect. Let's wait till it's almost done, which, you know, he had 55 pages to go before he got it done. But he's a pro. But also he was writing what he knows. Now, think about that for a minute. Think about how compelling that is. I am not a, a phenomenal agent or a phenomenal teacher. The reason why people like listening to me, the pe- reason why people are engaged when I speak, the reason why I attend these things and I'm asked to talk is simple. I'm interesting. I make the subject matter interesting. That's why you tune in every month, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But one of the things you have to realize is, is because deep, deep down, my backstory is I love this stuff. I love this stuff. This speaks probably more to why I have not gone to see a movie in the last year as much as I used to because I'm so in love with reading these scripts on the page that I, kids, I I tell you hand to God, I don't feel like I've missed a thing by not seeing Super 8, by not seeing Midnight. Now, I'm going to go see Midnight in Paris, obviously. I'm going to go see uh, Super 8. Yes, I am. I'm going to see these films that they're on my list. But I've read so many great scripts that I just sit back in my chair and go, damn it. And I mean, damn it. I wish this would get shot. This is killer. I have a script called Rhino Hysterical. I can't wait to see it on film if they don't ruin it. <clears throat> I would love to see Crawl shot. They want to make it out of a TV series. I don't know about that. I think it's a great feature. Okay. So um, writing what you know corner goes out to Richard Broadhurst for last session. Thank you, Richard. Good job. Um, the below the line corner. I read an article, very interesting, that I want to share with you. And this is important because those of you who think, and I know a lot of you do, that you have to be in L.A. to get things done, stick a pencil in your ear. No, you don't. No, you don't. Okay. Production locations, top 10 and beyond, according to the deadline team, which is Nikki Fink's uh, Who's He Watsa, um, they're telling you the top 10 in the United States areas of production. Number one, Louisiana. Number two. Illinois. Number three, Florida. Number four, Georgia. Number five, California. That's right. You heard me say it. California, number five. Uh, number six, Connecticut. Interesting. Number seven, New York. Number eight, Utah. One of my favorite clients lives there. He's a terrific director, screenwriter. You all know him, Craig Clyde. Hoorah. Number nine, New Mexico. Number ten, Michigan. And number and Michigan may be falling off because I think they got rid of those tax breaks, but we'll see. Now, top ten locations in the universe. Ah, flip the coin. Things change. Number one, yes, California. Number two, this is odd to me. I have to find out why this is. I have to ask producers. Number two is Connecticut. Number three is Georgia. Georgia made the top five in the previous list and also made the top five here. Uh, number four, Louisiana. Number five, Massachusetts, which is not on the previous list. That's very strange. Number six, New York. Number seven, North Carolina. Number eight, you all know this, A, Canada. Uh, number nine, New Zealand. I do not get that. If someone knows why, shoot me an email and tell me why. United Kingdom is number 10. So that's universe. The first list was uh, United States, and then the second was universe. Films to see. I'm told I should not miss the artist. I hear John Goodman is just drop-dead fantastic in it. I will be seeing that actually in the theater. I think I'm going to go tomorrow, and I may go next weekend. I just have to see how I'm feeling. My my, th- my throat's really not working very well, 
And you guys all know I like to sing. I'm going to try and sing at church tomorrow. Wish me luck. Okay. Scripts to read. I started reading The Help. Fell in love with it from page one. OMG, it's fabulous. If you want to get a solid footing on reading an adaptation, read the book Help. If Okay. This only works if you haven't seen the film. So that's the caveat to this next statement. If you're going to read, if you want to do an adaptation and you want to get your chops going, read the book The Help and then read the script The Help. Don't see the film. Don't see it. Don't see it. Don't see it. If you're going to see it first, don't read the book. Read the script after that because you, you, by then you won't gain anything. from. Well, actually, you might. I take that back. You might. I, I changed that. Do, do all three. But uh, don't do the film first if you haven't seen it first. Skip it. Go to the other two um, source materials first and then go to the third. Um, in the exposition corner, this actually speaks to the earlier comments I was making about um, – Brian O'Malley, who is my hero, as you know, he owns screenplay readers, love him, love him, love his team. He does not push his uh, readers. He pays them well. They do very good work, and they have serious chops. You may not agree with it 100%, but 99.9% of the time, they get it right. Um, and as you know, I've met him because I give him a lot of business, and I wanted to meet him face-to-face and make sure he was kosher and on the up-and-up. He's way on the up-and-up. I love that guy. He's a – I have a Christian crush on him. He's a good guy. Um he is he his biggest challenge is he sees this all the time and he wishes he could just scream it to the universe so he doesn't have to say it again but exposition becomes a real challenge with writers at its core brevity is the soul of wit you get a dollar if you know who said that listen to song lyrics for crying out loud i mean night moves come on you can see the whole story unfolding from night moves by bob seger you could I would like you to write a script, 10 pages or less. You don't have to use the lyrics from the song if you don't want to. This isn't like Werewolf from Werewolves of London where I wanted you to be, you know, really spot on because of the way the story unfolded. But listen to a song like Night Moves and write a short about it. You, you have two characters in under three minutes. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly what their goals are. You know exactly what their backstory is, which I'm going to get to in a minute. And frankly... If you can't do that in, if you can't do this in five pages or less, you need to learn how to edit. Your biggest problem may not be writing, it may be editing. Okay? My pet peeve corner is, why is? Don't say is unless you must say what is, is. Which brought me to backstory. I honestly don't know why this is, but I can tell you from experience that Oscar Wilde, you're funny. <laughs> No, I think it was, um, wasn't it William Shakespeare, Michael, that said brevity is the soul of wit? I don't know. We'll have to chase that down on Google. Love Google. Okay, so my pet peeve corner. Don't tell me that Jerry is sitting at a poker table with a full house. Don't tell me that. Tell me Jerry sweats, holds a full house, losing streak. Tell me something about. Jerry, don't say what he is. Tell me what is. Tell me the, about the soup he's sitting in. Okay, bring me to that moment. And kids, you got to do it on page one. I don't care if he's playing poker, shooting pool, flying a jet. You got to do it on page one. You got to bring it. You got to bring your A game. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. These are not my rules. It's fact of life. Don't give people scripts where you're going to make their eyes bleed. Please don't do it. I realize probably more than you then you know. I realize that writers love to write. I get it. I realize that writers love to embellish. So get that. 
That's why I'm a novel writer. But when Debbie looked at Full Moon Morning, my book, she said, okay, this can't go onto screen because it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't serve the story arc. It's beautiful details. It's very pretty. It gives you a sense of vibe. It gives you a sense of tone. It makes you connect with the characters. The actors are going to do that for you, we hope. So my pet peeve corner is make sure that you get um, get to the point about your character right away. Don't tell me what he is. Show me what he is. We're going to talk about uh, an article that I dug up. I don't know how I found this, but it's from May, June, Writer's Digest 2011. It's called um, Writer's Workbook, Exercises and Tips for Honing Specific Aspects of Your Writing. And then I think there may even be a web page. I will try to find that for you. Let's see. Excerpted from On Writing Romance, 2007, Lee Michaels, with permission from Writer's Digest Books. Visit writersdigestworkshop.com, enter the code WORKBOOK, and get 10% off on the discount. Okay, well, anyway. Um, okay. So much for not vetting my material before I – okay. So work uh, workbook, backstory, why backstory is essential. Okay. You guys, if you listen to Babs Buzz every single show, which you better, because if you don't, you're missing a lot. And if you do, play them over again, okay, because this is like an AA degree in what we're doing. And I don't say that because of me. I say that because I listen to people who know. They tell me. I pay attention. I absorb it, and I pass it on to you. Okay. So – Backstory, building backstory, why backstory is essential. This speaks to the business of subtext. You guys were freaking out over subtext. I got more email on that than anything else. I don't know what you're talking about. This is too hard. Okay. Using backstory to add depth to characters. This They're talking about fiction in this article, but I'm going to talk to you about screenwriting because it applies. In screenwriting, it's the job to give characters moments to react to. The decisions and actions they make in those moments are absolute expressions of their true underlying bold italics, of their true character arising from the third dimension of character depth. I'm going to repeat that. It bears repeating. The decisions and actions, i.e. visuals, i.e. movie, the decision and action they, t- they, they take in those moments are absolutely expressions of their true character arising from the third dimension of character depth. Third dimension is obviously, for fiction, it's going to be surface reaction. Show enough backstory to allow, I'm pulling some key quotes out of this that I prepared for you guys. See, I do homework. Show enough backstory to allow the reader to glean and make assumptions about what remains behind the curtain of time, yet continues to influence the character's worldview, attitudes, decisions, and actions. I'm going to give you an example about all this in a minute, so hang tough with me. And isn't it nice that you can replay this if you have to? And that's a motorcycle going by. Okay. Then again, backstory. Okay, if a backstory is a major element of the story, as it is with Scrooge, and that's the one I'm actually going to use for my example, Mystic River and Shutter Island, you certainly weave it into. They actually cite Mystic River and Shutter Island. Those were not my two choices, but I'll get to Scrooge in a minute. Here's their money line. The primary guideline is called the iceberg principle. Show 10% of your character's backstory, literally. A glimpse leading to an ongoing t- context. Show enough to allow the reader to glean, and in this case would be the director, to glean and make assumptions about what remains behind the curtain of time, yet continues to influence the character's worldview, attitudes, decisions. It's Your character's actions need to have a psychological validity and a visible connection to some behavioral explanation with roots in the past. 
backstories, how you make that happen. And to build, uh, they gave you, give us a quote here that says, if you go to writersdigest.com forward slash article forward slash story dash engineering excerpt, you might actually be able to download this. As the point about this business of backstory is they give you tips on how to do this. You're going to use documentation, like in the Lord of the Rings, the opening, where they explain everything. Or memories. You're going to inject memories. What a character says, how a character looks, a dream he may have, an object, a song. You can do an extended flashback if you want. You have to be sure that it's dramatically appropriate so that you can deliver on the backstory. You have to choose the most appropriate method. And when you're employing flashbacks, you have to orient the reader to the time and place. It's very important that you understand that you have to keep the action intense. You, if it's danger, you have to make it feel real. You have to keep the emotion high. You have to repeat action phrases or events to show a perfect example. That would be Sixth Sense where he keeps going, I see dead people, I see dead people. But every time he sees dead people, we get to see a different dead person he's seen. This supports his backstory. Okay, so I, I saw Christmas Cottage over the holidays. script is terrific. This, the film was a little plodding. The roles were very well done. Uh, Peter O'Toole was absolutely spectacular. The script was like a little like a gentle walk that scurries eventually and then leaps to an end. Um, I loved it. I actually bought it for my husband, and we started a tradition where we're regifting it. I we watched it, and then I regifted it to my in-laws, and I told them they have to watch it and regift it to someone else because the the theme, the promise of the premise, um, love is light and light is love delivers through the film. And it's really the story of Thomas Kincaid and how he became who he is. Many of you know him. If not, Google him. Okay. So what is backstory? I'm going to use Scrooge as an example so that you get this. Act one. Scrooge is set up by who he is. And they don't say Scrooge is cheap. Scrooge is this. Scrooge is that. They show you. They show you his present condition. What is it? Never takes off his coat. Eats with his head down at his table. Minimalist movement. Can't stand people. You watch him interact with people. It is absolutely painful to watch. Why? Why? You, if you are not asking why your characters do things, something isn't right. If your characters are just talking at me, you're gonna, I'm gonna close, I'm gonna close the script. I promise you I will. I wanna know why. And I don't wanna know on why on page one, but the action has to be so interesting, so intriguing that it yanks me, it forces me to keep reading, like the script Crawl did when I first read that one. It was perfect. It was utterly set up perfectly. Scrooge, we get to see this guy. Now, remember, too, we hear a voiceover. Scrooge is a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So we kind of know, based on the archetype and the wonderful voiceover that the, the screenwriter was smart enough to inject because it's based on a book. And by the way, the book... Um, is not a social statement. That book is a statement about personal change, not corporations. Scrooge kept on making money so he could give more to charity and pay his employees more because he realized how unfair he was as a person, and that made him a better employer. It isn't this whole corporate baloney. That's that's nonsense. That's not what this book is about. And the, the writer says that. He actually said that because his father was broke. Okay, so they set up. So Act 1 sets up who this guy is. Ah, oh, but it gets better. It gets much better. In Act 2, we find out why he became who we got to know by the ghost of Christmas past. What is that? Remember it says extended flashbacks in the workbook? Yes, you did. I just said it. Replay it if you, did, if you missed it. When the ghost of Christmas past comes along, he says, this was your, um, you were at school. 
and your sister came because you were all by yourself. You were so focused on your, your school book. Why was he focused by himself? Peel that back. Because when his mother gave birth to him, she died. And he blamed himself, and he thought his father blamed him too. But we find out in this wonderful, sweet little scene, which takes, oh, I don't know, maybe three lines. Hello. Brevity. I hearken back to the opening theme. Okay, see, this show beats out. <laughs> um, his sister says, oh, Papa has become just so sweet. He wants you home, and he misses, and he's forgetting the past, and all this wonderful British, you know, hierarchy stuff. It's just wonderful. It's just high tone and fancy to do without being pretentious at all. And they embrace, and it's lovely. Then we are brought over to when Fran is in childbirth, deja vu. She says to Ebenezer, take care of my boy, take care of my boy, take care of my boy. She dies. This poor guy can't catch a friggin' break. The two women he loves, he never even got to love his mother because he didn't get to know her. Now his sister's dead. This is going to make for one pissed off grown up, wouldn't you say? I would. So if he's not the most friendly guy in the world, he's not because he's a bastard. It's because he's been, he's been so battered by life that he's become this sort of, Keep away from me. I just got to get through the day. I've got to get through the moment. I've got to make money because money and numbers don't lie. I can grasp them. I can get them. They make sense to me, which probably makes a lot of sense as to why he chose the business that he did. But it also made him a little cruel in his business, business actions. So now we see him. In, now I'm going to go back a minute to the act one. We see him saying to his nephew, who's grown, who we don't know why at the time he's so Rotten to his nephew. Humbug, right? He says that to him. Humbug, I say. He tells, you know, and a Merry Christmas to you, Uncle. Even if you don't celebrate, I'm going to be happy anyway. Okay. So now in Act 2, we find out why this is happening. We get the backstory. When we get to Act 3, what do we see? Well, oh, I, I want to say something else. I want to talk about the romance for a minute. He... The endorphins of romance being what they are, of course, they kick in and he tells his girlfriend, I'm going to love you forever, da, 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 da. And as business pulls him away from the, the less emotional part of his life, he gets angry over nothing and picks a fight with his girlfriend over nothing. Or I don't know if they ever married. I can't recall at the moment, but he actually decides, well, fine, if you, she says, I, 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 relieve, I, I relieve you from your promise to me. I don't care. It, you know, I, I wish you well. And then she cries, which, by the way, that actually did make me cry when I saw it for the first time. Um, because I realized what was happening here. You know, it was just a stupid misunderstanding. And, but it really did bode to, it, it proved out his arc going in a completely different direction of love and caring. And in the south direction, if you will, of an actual, um, I'm going to do things that I know I, I can get a guaranteed result out of. None of this love business and l sweetness and light. It's humbug, I say, right? So now in Act 3, the hero has to change, right? What makes him change? Simple. The inevitability of death. Now, I'm not going to preach to you, okay? But this guy clearly got the shit scared out of him. Whether he, for, the, for a moment he thought God was in it or he didn't, whatever he thought, he did not want to be remembered, if you remember at the end, where the actual, um, the, the, the gal who picks the curtains off the rods 
and the man who um, is the undertaker where they're talking about him and he gets to eavesdrop on this about how little he was cared about and how little he was loved and just a variety of, of insults. And he hears this and then he sees Tiny Tim and the pain on his employee's face that, you know, if he had a little bit more money, the kid might have lived. I'm getting the chills just thinking about it. All of this hits him at the end and he goes, I, I got it. I, 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 I'm screwed. But what did it? What did it? The reality of the inevitability of death frightened him so that when he woke up, he said, that's it. That's it. It has to be about love. It can't be about anything else. This was not a ghost that told him this. He came to this conclusion himself. In Act 3, he's holding on to the bedpost. He's freaking out. I do believe in ghosts. I do. I do. He's freaking out. He's freaking out. He wakes up. My mother, to this day, I remember when she was alive, she used to imitate that maid perfectly. It was hysterical. Every Christmas, we would watch this movie in black and white, Alistair Sim. It's the only one that matters. No other version of Scrooge matters. If you want to see the Scrooge that matters, you watch the one starring Alistair Sim. Period. End of story. I will debate anyone anywhere on the planet about that. You cannot convince me otherwise. There are many good Scrooges. There is one great Scrooge. It is Alistair Sim. He is the man. This is a tradition in my home. So my mother used to do the maid really well. I'm going to scream for the beagle. She was hysterical. It was so cute. This guy had love given to him either from God or he made a decision. I don't care what you believe. This isn't a theology lesson. And he decided he is going to make a change. And then the way he goes about doing it was extraordinary. I mean, I could tell, I'll tell, I'll tell you something religious for a minute. You don't have to take too much away from this if you don't want to. When I became a Christian, I learned how to love better. I realized how crippled inside I was. It wasn't me, it was God talking to me. I was listening. Now, he didn't tell me how to drive a car or, you know, how to, you know, invest in mutual funds. I'm just telling you, it's a feeling you get that you now are connected to, to God, right? So, whatever happened to him, however he flipped his coin, however he flipped his lid, the result were, was, paid his employee more money, he wanted to help Tiny Tim, but the biggest scene of all is when he asks for forgiveness of his nephew. Can you forgive an old fool who doesn't have eyes to see and doesn't have ears to hear? And you watch the looks on their faces. Listen to me. You paying attention? Tell me you are. No dialogue, she says, dear uncle. And the guy in the back goes, poke up, right? That is a movie. That is how you show backstory. That is how you show subtext. All is forgiven. Why? We have music. We have dancing. Don't want to belabor it. The horse is dead. Kick him out of the living room. We don't want him stinking up the place. Okay? Very, very significant. Okay. We're going to change the formatting. So I hope that helped you. Backstory is everything. You don't have a film if you don't have backstory. Period. End of story. If you are writing a tale about someone's life and what happened to them and how it happened to them, if you don't have their backstory in there, your script is, is going to be as flat as 10 day old Pepsi Cola. Okay. And I can stand by that. Um, next, uh, quarter, I'm going to talk about uh, the blacklist. So let's talk about the format changes. Okay. Kids, Michael and I made a decision. We're going to do the show quarterly. J. Joe. January, April, July, October. I'm going to do it for 40 minutes. I'm going to run long because I'm getting very, very, very busy, and I don't want to repeat myself, and I don't want to bore you. So since the reviews are so good about the show and since we're getting thousands of hits, I'm very excited. I'm very humbled. I'm really very pleased. I want to be here for you, but i got to spend time reading your work, which means you guys have to be writing.
If you're not writing, I can't buy shoes. So January, April, July, October. This is Babs for Babs Buzz with a new theme song. Michael and I picked it out. This is Babs for Babs Buzz saying that you need to write. You need to rewrite. You need to have a table read. You need to have backstory. But you got to live your life. Peace.